0: Good July afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Distant Poet Society. I'm Mr. Smith. We've got Miss Ramirez. We've got Mr. Rodriguez. And we have our new permanent guest, Mr. Santos, the LTAC coordinator, resident smart guy, not the ELL coordinator. Thank you for correcting me, sir. Welcome back to the show. Welcome forever. You're no longer allowed to leave. Thank yes. We <laughs> love you. Bye.
1: Alrighty. Well, today we are going to discuss District 9, which is a 2009 science fiction film directed by Neil Blom- Blomkamp, I'm guessing. Blomkamp. And written by Neil Blomkamp and Terry Tatchell. There's some, these names aren't even that hard, but I'm not very good at pronouncing names. I've never heard out loud. So, uh, brief summary. Maybe not so brief. The story begins in an alternate 1982, when an alien spaceship appears over Johannesburg, South Africa. When a population of sick and malnourished aliens are discovered on the ship the south african government confines them to a concentration camp called district 9. It didn't start out as a concentration camp but it eventually became that 20 years later during the government's relocation of the aliens to another camp vickis van der Merwe is that how you say it they always said it so fast the bureaucratic um leading the relocation is infected with an alien fluid that begins to transform him from human to alien vickis is taken to um, the MNU lab and it is uh, decided that they will strip his body down the parts to use in experiments to help humans use the alien weapons. Vickus escapes and hides in district nine. He is united with one of the aliens named Christopher Johnson who is planning to try to escape from earth with his son and return home. Vickers helps Christopher Johnson find that same fluid that infected him because it is the fuel to start a small ship that will help the aliens return to their mothership and then eventually to their home planet, with promises of a medical cure to return to his human body. Vickers is driven by his selfishness, and the plan fails, but he eventually realizes the treatment of the aliens is wrong and helps Christopher Johnson escape to the mothership. It is unclear where Vickers is, as there are many conspiracy theories, but a shot of an alien making a rose out of, a tra- uh, sorry, out of trash suggests that Vikas lives as an alien in the concentration camp.
0: A lot going on there a lot so Definitely. um as as the resident only person who had never seen this movie before um oh, oh also, ramirez then. miss ramirez Miss Ramirez also had never seen it before well then i will let miss ramirez talk first
1: about what the social and historical context
0: about oh. initial reactions
1: <laughs> oh initial reactions oh he's going off script
2: oh snap okay um i'm not a fan of sci-fi movies at all
1: of sci-fi movies.
2: Okay. It's okay. <laughs> so let's just. <laughs> uh, it, it took me about three days to watch it in small increments. Um, mostly because I think because <laughs> I'm a, <laughs> I think because I'm a visual learner. I will admit that m- movies like that that look like a video game and movies that are produced by, oh no, I'm going to get slammed on this one by Mr. Smith, by Marvel, I can't handle watching them because I get nauseous. So oh, that's, <laughs> that's my first reaction. Um, I, the, <laughs> it took me a while. First reaction, okay, I it was moving way too fast, I'd say like the first half hour. Um, and it reminded me a little bit of The Office, kind of like this mockumentary. Uh, and yep. so it, I was I was fully invested about 30 minutes into the film once all the fast paced moving um, scenes happened. Um, but then I became fully invested when in his own conversion into a prime. And then I was like fully in. What about you, Mr. Smith?
0: Um so I, I know that I know that everyone was was anticipating an absurd reaction from uh, people that uh, don't like the Marvel movies, but uh, as the, as their resident show, I'll be the first to tell you um they're they're good. I mean I've I've seen Avengers endgame once like I don't need to see it again because the the last, the last like <laughs> 15 minutes of it is on Twitter that I can look up at a moment's notice. But anyway, um this movie was I amazing am- like I was, I was very very with how i just had never seen it before i uh because it came out my senior year of high school and i remember i went to go see transformers 2 and i didn't see this movie so 18 year old mr smith was an idiot but yeah i was very impressed with the movie that's
1: funny I just, for the record, I really like sci-fi movies, but particularly alien sci-fi movies. Oh, yeah. 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 I just, I never watched the Cloverfield movies until recently, because I always thought they were like horror movies, and I hate horror movies, but Cloverfield really good.
2: Oh, yeah. I can't sit through that.
1: <laughs> Anyways. Um, okay, so moving on to the social and historical context. Yes. What is the social and historical context of the selection? So it's a fictional setting, but in a real place, Johannesburg. Um, specifically, in an alien slum called District Nine, um, and I found from Wikipedia, so might not be true. Not kidding. Um, the title and the premise of the movie were inspired by events in Cape Town's District Six during the apartheid era. I did not know that. Yep.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I also didn't know, Ms. Rodriguez, and you mentioned it in the in the like little recap at the beginning that it's an alternate 1983 or something.
1: Yeah, 1982. That one was another one from Wikipedia. I wasn't sure of the time frame, and really, I hadn't thought about it because I just kind of thought it like took place in like 2009, obviously in an alternate sure. because there's aliens. Because of the phones, those phones looked like what we were used to seeing, but apparently it's 1982. So maybe with the the aliens coming, they were able to fast track some of their technology. I'm not sure because they had like, well, like, right if like, it is
3: 1982. 1982- I mean, it's important that it's if it is 1982 and not 2009, because, um, because 1982 would have been right in the middle of apartheid for them. Um, I mean, they don't start repealing some of those laws until like 1991, I and mean, that's not to say that what's they call it, that 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 did away with uh, with uh, with racial prejudice and, and discrimination in South Africa. But I think it is significant that 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 if it's set in that time it's right in the middle and that they're trying to speak with the film yes um i i do want
0: to kind of uh jump in a little bit the the film begins in 1982 but it does smash cut to 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 20 some odd years later oh right yeah because because at at the end whenever the uh, ship takes off the the uh, news crew is saying oh after like after over two decades the uh, ship is finally moving but definitely, the 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 apartheid is 100% the like main driving focus of this. Um, I'm still not fully 100% well educated in apartheid mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. think that it's a very it was a very like uh, obviously horrible um, uh, uh, event that happened in South Africa. But I also just really like, uh, and the movie even has like a commentary on it where it's like, yeah, aliens didn't show up in New York or like L.A. or like some like American city. They showed it showed up in Johannesburg, which is I think the no, Cape Town's the capital, but Johannesburg is the most populated city in South Africa. I think.
3: I mean, I, I think it was a, it was a number of things, but I mean, it was basically essentially like I remember the the number, the dates right. It was like 1948 ish to 1991 ish, and they had instituted the South African government. um, you know, led primarily by Afrikaners, people speakers of you know white speakers of Afrikaans, which if I remember correctly is like a,
1: Dutch original
3: is a derivative of the, mm-hmm. yeah, with some African you know with some 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 other languages kind of mixed in. Um, and basically they institutionalized segregation to a very deep level com- you know comparable to the way we had it in, in many ways. In the United States under Jim Crow, um, but also, I mean, it was something like by that point, eighty uh, percent of the eighty percent of the of the country was was white, black, yeah. and they only owned or had control of something like twenty percent of the of the country in terms of land. So, I mean, there were all sorts of crazy uh, injustices going on. Uh, You know, those are just kind of like some of the highlights that I read on, you know, on the History Channel's page on apartheid. Uh
1: Yeah, so Trevor Noah describes it as like, for an American to understand it, he said it's like slavery and segregation, all at the same, like all happening at the same time. And they really specified like making, They called it like they basically said breeding, but like having intimate relationships with someone outside of your race was illegal because it created mixed for people because they were supposed to be separated. Um, And then also in Trevor Noah's book, he talked about how you could actually apply to be a different race, like and the government could approve you. So Mm -hmm. you could like move Mm -hmm. up like a step. And it wasn't just like white and black. They also had like lighter skinned black people were called colored, which is very doesn't mm-hmm. Americans read. And then you had Indians, and I'm I think they're like people from India and then some other ones. And so Trevor Noah what had a black mother and a white father, would, and so he was born illegally. And a lot of people looked at him as colored because of his fair skin, but he was raised by his black mother, but didn't fit in the black community, didn't fit in with the colored community because like they also created a lot of like cultural identities around their race because they they were so segregated they didn't interact with anybody else um and yeah he said like if your skin was fair enough or your like your hair was straight enough you could be promoted to like the lighter race and eventually up to white if the government allowed it
3: i wonder if some of that was because of the family se- so apparently initially a lot of families got separated a lot of multiracial families got separated yeah. from each other because of it, because they were, they I mean, they basically were forced to live in different places. And I wonder if that was to kind of, you know, in a, this crazily messed up way, uh, make up for, not, I, I don't want to say make up, but like to, 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 to find a way to be able to allow kids back with one or the other of their, of their parents. Um, they also did, the I mean it kind of reminded me of the divide by con- um uh, divide and conquer strategy of the Romans and the Brits because they 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 not only as you mentioned separated you know blacks from whites but within the w- you know within w- within blacks they were separating Nigerians from Zimbabweans from what's it called and and I've read later liter I I, I, I read I've read articles uh, for. They had more to do with like language and and, and language yeah. mixing among the townships. But I've read articles about kind of the difficulty of the relations between people, between townships, um and and within townships. And and a lot of these are drawn a lot of the tensions are drawn in tribal slash linguistic uh, lines. And it gets really complicated for for some of these people, when you know mom is a a, a Sesotho and uh, you know, and dad is you know uh, uh, Zulu or from a different you know uh, tribal faction. I mean, I'm just kind of making some of the yeah. examples up, but the type of stuff that they that that they were talking about. But I think I think it was the way that one of the articles that I read made it sound was it was in the interest of the greater oppressive structure to have a lot of these people hold these tensions against each other. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. He explained that like, so language, um, Trevor Noah explained that language was something that separated people. So his mother and him learned as many languages as they could. So that way they could like, when they're out on the street, like he would hear someone behind him in a certain language saying, we're gonna jump him. And he'd just turn around and, you know, speak to them in the same language. And he had this argument that language is actually a greater connector than anything else. Cause when you hear someone sound like you, you can like relate to them. Um, And he said it was for, you know, the, the, the group, In power in South Africa to maintain that power. Because if you could get the majority racial group, the black people in that country to hate each other, you keep them separated, you keep your power. And
2: that's divide and
0: conquer. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Um,
2: I I mean, but there were two types of apartheid there was petty apartheid, which was taking away very skilled black uh, Africans uh, from their jobs and having them being replaced with a white person that might not have been as skilled. And then there was grand apartheid, which brought up the, where the Afrikaners tried to make the black people that were native to South Africa, embarrassed of their culture. Cause there was the Bantu Education Act of 1953, where they, they educated blacks in two shifts and the racial of the classroom was 56 students to one teacher and they would, they would teach them in these three hour shifts one in the morning and then in the afternoon. And that's where they spread this propaganda to them and taught them that they were dumb, that they were meandering, that without the great white hope of the Afrikaners who came to save them, that they wouldn't have been educated, that they wouldn't have, you know, uh, they, they would have been complete savages without the help of the white people there. And that stripped away their pride in who they were. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the natives, when the Dutch first arrived in the age of exploration, they were called the Khoi people,
0: K-H-O-I. One, one thing that I also found in like the online discourse about the movie in particular was um, at the beginning when they're talking about the prawns when they first land ahead of Johannesburg, some of those um, talking head bits were from actual South african citizens and mm-hmm. they were commenting on the zimbabwean refugees because mm. uh, the the idea was that uh when there were when there was a large cluster of zimbabwe people living in south africa um they were relegated to the slums and so people saw them as less than human i saw this i i watched this really really interesting video on how aliens are portrayed in media um but we can we can go back to that later on uh, when we <laughs> talk about the characters but i uh, I just want to put a verbal pin in it, so that way I can come back to it later.
2: Remember, it. like you could have done with the mixtape.
0: Oh <laughs> yes. Okay. By the way, um, I've, so I so I'm so proud of the Hamilton episode, and I'm very proud of like everything that we talked about. But there's one thing that I neglected to mention, which is the Hamilton mixtape, uh, which is a album that was released by Lin Manuel Miranda, who created the musical. Um, and what he did was he did reimagining. Of songs that were either cut from the from the original because I want to say there's about seven or eight different songs that that are cut from uh, from the stage performance, but then there's also reimagined songs. So like, uh, wait for it, Burr's song is sun, sung by Usher. Uh, Helpless is sung by Asan- Ashanti and Ja Rule. Washington wow. on your side is performed by Wiz Khalifa. It's very interesting. So it's it's so definitely go check worth a listen.
1: It's on Spotify.
0: Yes. And this I'm podcast stif- also sponsored well, by Spotify.
1: <laughs> we wish. It is. Um, Okay. And so I guess the, the only thing I wanted to add, so the specific, so like apartheid is a very large concept that happened, which of course we see the influence of in this film, but specifically what we see is the removal of the aliens from their, I guess, current home, even though it wasn't really their chosen home. And this is what happened with district six, six, the real life event in South Africa. So based on my research, apparently district six was an area that was relatively cosmopolitan. So like it had shoppings and like people were making money, you know, and they were kind of going about life um, in ways that were very similar to um, it was right by the water and it had a pretty diverse population. I think it was majority black, um, but there was still a lot, of, there was d- diversity within it. And so the government said that they needed to remove those people from district six and they were taking them somewhere else, which is what happens with the aliens. And they gave four primary reasons. They said it was allowing interracial breeding, which was illegal because people of different races were living together. They called it a slum, even though it wasn't. And they also portrayed the area as crime ridden and dangerous. And they claimed the district was full of immoral activities, which is exactly what you see in the the setup of the interviews at the beginning of the film when they're describing District 9. They talk about how it's a slum. They use those exact words. They say that where where there's weapons, there's crime. They talk about prostitution and all these these things and painting this area as a really bad place, when in reality it was just poverty-stricken. But in the real-life place, district, District 6, they didn't have poverty issues. So they removed them, and they sent them somewhere else, um, all the non white people It was only made up um one percent of the population was white, and then they just mm-hmm. declared it all white and apparently a lot of it was kind of left abandoned until after apartheid ended and they started kind of rebuilding it uh,
3: in in many ways I mean to kind of broaden this out a little bit in many ways a lot of what you describe reminds me of the relationships that for example the australian yeah. government had with the aborigines and the, and that our own government had with the, the native americans among other you know kind of colonial type situations um and a lot of you know a lot of it having to do with relocation um well, i can get into it a little bit more later but i mean if you just look at the history behind the cherokee nation and how their rem- their, their removal went down i mean you, you see a lot of the similar uh, a lot of similar things and one of the things that caught my attention not just this time but the even the first time that i watched this movie was the attempt at legal justification to do all of this i mean we can kind of get into some of those details later on but um but it but it but it plays a it plays a really interesting part in the narrative
1: yeah it was the whole thing about we 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 can remove them but they have to sign this we have to tell them and they just they don't even need the aliens to sign or understand they just like call it their scrawl. they just like yep Hit them. Yeah. They just hit. They clip. They hit the clipboard, and they're like, "It's fine." Yeah, they they called it legal, but it definitely was
3: not. Well, not to mention that like it means that they were presenting raw coercive signatures. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, okay. Well, I'm going to take your baby away if you know if you don't sign. When they, you know, when they attempt to take Christopher Jones, I forgot what the what the alien's name uh, character name was Christopher Johnson. That's right. Um, and, and or, or they got a, you know, like one of them refuses to sign and gets a little aggressive and he says he calls in a helicopter with a sniper, the sniper, you know, shoots at the alien. The guy's like, Hey, do you, you want to talk to me? Or do you want to talk to them? Like, okay, well, who's not going to sign, bro? <laughs> All right. Well,
1: I think we can move on the characters, continue that conversation. So who are the characters? What are their traits? What conflicts do they encounter and how do they respond to said conflicts?
0: So we've got Charlotte Copley, who plays uh, Vickis, uh, Vickis. who is the government employee, who is, and and I love the way that he's portrayed, because he's like bumbling, but also Mm semi-capable, and so what they do is they kind of give him this responsibility that should not be given to any lone person, but they do that so they kind of have a fall guy in case it doesn't go well, which I just thought was a very nice, you know, meta-commentary on life um and then we have christopher johnson who is completely portrayed through cgi he didn't even have an actor credit christopher johnson is uh one of the aliens but um we thought it was important to mention that charlotte Copley, the guy that plays vickis uh was not a classically trained actor in fact this was his first movie ever and he was just standing in for the director neil blomkamp and they just essentially went went with it he had i, I don't think he ever had like a formal script. I think he just they kind of put him in front of most of the scenes and he kind of just did his thing.
1: For the whole movie or just the interview at the beginning?
0: I want to say
1: there had no there was a script they wrote well, it. Right right,
0: but I don't think he had a, he had any like lines written down.
3: Vicus is is and isn't a government worker. Like yes, it seems like they're representing government, government, but it's actually a contracted private agency that he's working for. In other words, the he is the agent of a multinational corporation named Multinational United or something like that. Right. And they've been contracted by the government. And I think, I, I don't know how that plays into the apartheid, but I think I that might have been a place where where the author or the director brought in uh, something from the contemporary world of 2009, where we all we know that military operations that were being held at that time in included contracted uh what's it called you know paramilitary personnel i mean we had just you know we were what's it called we we had you know the whole uh contractors in afghanistan and iraq and and you know in in our own nation's uh history but i mean i'm sure that there's examples of it at that time period of you know, from, from other places. Well,
1: and and the thing that I took away from Vickis is he, he goes into this mission of getting all the aliens to sign these eviction notices, which there's like 1.8 million of them. So I don't understand how he's going to do that. I imagine it was going to go on for a while, but it only lasted for a day. But he, he talks about how, like, you can find a way to like convince them and talk to them. And like, you don't need to use like weapons, because he he criticizes one of the the, the contracted military guys. Um, he mentions like you have too much ammunition that's over the limit, and he always he you know and he talks about like we can we can kind of like offer it's cat food they like eating cat food, um, and we can give them these bribes and be nice. And but then he like he holds so much prejudice against the aliens. He like he still gets like when they don't listen, he starts kind mm-hmm. of he threatens their life. Yeah, with the the helicopter, and then he. He uses the, he calls them prawns instead of aliens. And like the the minute he starts turning into an alien, just he couldn't even imagine. Well, I mean, obviously his life would change drastically, but um, because he's married and he, he seems to really love his wife, but like he, he's got like a lot of hate for aliens in him, even though he came off as very kind and considerate.
2: He has the best character arc because he starts off as this like bureaucratic naive guy who's just, you know, he's not the guy
1: that's putting
2: these, policies into place but he's going along for the ride and you know he's going you know to getting all these signatures and then as he converts into an alien himself he's starting to see how they don't see him as a human anymore and it made me think how many times in this country or any other country when how many times do we not see refugees or immigrants as people and but you know but then all of a sudden he goes from just being this naive guy to turning into an alien and then he becomes this revolutionary for them leading you know the revolt against the bureaucracy
1: but not not like right away cuz i was no. watching it mm-hmm. and when they're going to get the fluid and then as you know, I'm like, all right, he's on the alien side. He sees that this shit is wrong. Like he's with an alien who sees all the terrible experiments they're doing on aliens and he knew he knows it's wrong. And then the minute he finds out that Christopher Johnson is like, well, it's actually going to take three years because I need to help my people first and then I'll cure you. He just totally sa- he leaves him for dead, yeah. basically. And then yep. like he kind of like kidnaps the kid. I felt so bad for the kid and the kid alien. And. Yeah, I was really frustrated. It took him a long time to, like, come around to the aliens.
3: It's almost like he doesn't want to get his hands dirty.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, no, I can't, I can't even say that. He goes into one of the shacks and finds, like, an egg hatchery for yeah, for bird. these aliens. And he himself engages in the act of aborting them. And and that itself is a euphemism, which is a whole thing I want to get into, when, you know, at some point today. But, like, um, and then as they're, like... <laughs> setting the hatchery on fire you could literally hear the you know the the hatchlings dying and he's like oh it's like popcorn they go pop. I mean he's making light of it so you know I, I at first I was like oh you know what this guy is kind of sim- you know somewhat sympathetic he wants to protect life you know he doesn't he he wants to hold back military action but then after I saw that I was like well maybe not so much like kind of like Miss Miss Rodriguez said you know it, in in my opinion it really takes a while to to come around to being kind of an ethical person.
1: I think he's a really good representation of people who like think that because they're not the person, the people making the decisions. They're not the people doing, you know, the heavy lifting on like the bad work that they're good people, even though they hold a a lot of like really hateful beliefs and will sit around and watch and not like push back against policy that they should think is wrong, but they don't really think it's wrong. But he would have never said he... Like he would have never admitted, yeah, I don't like the aliens and I'm, you know, I'm cruel to them, even though that's exactly what it was for a long time.
2: It kind of reminded me of that poem, uh, uh, Martin Neumuller, the one that says they came for me, then they came for me, where it says they came uh, for the Jews and I didn't speak up. And then they came for that, that That's exactly that whole, that's what it reminded me of. And then they came for me and then there was no one to speak up
1: for me i know what poem you're talking about but i can't think of the name i have to
2: look it (laughs) up yeah
1: well and then so we have kubus the he was like the the trigger happy aggressive military guy (laughs) who like you knew he was you knew he wasn't a good guy and probably vick probably thought he was so much better than him and i mean kubus was terrible there was a that part where he he like he's talking to an alien and he's like i can't believe they pay me to do this i love watching the prawns die like of course he's like way 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 too much um I don't know. Vicus isn't much worse than, or much better than him. They both have
0: a pretty high body count by the end of the movie, for sure. sure. Oh, so I, f- I think it's important to mention. So, um, for for those of you that that haven't seen the movie, I mean, I don't know why you're listening to this if you haven't seen it. But I, I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> right. They miss us. That's. I didn't know if that, that this movie had like a hard R rating. But like, man, some of the some of the gore in this is very, very like, whew. Like I probably won't won't have a cherry slushy anytime soon. But um I I thought it was really important to mention um all of the all of the technology that was taken from the prawns, um actually Neil Blomkamp has said in a lot of interviews that that their technology was primarily for like mining base. So it isn't meant to to kill people. So that's Mm -hmm. why anytime someone gets shot with with one of the alien weapons, um there's yeah, it's extremely messy. So like so they have like like plasma drills and you know, um, that, that like air cannon, which I thought was super cool. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that the reason why this movie got made in the first place was because Neil Blomkamp made a, well, so he was supposed to make the movie based off of uh, the Halo franchise, which is I, one, one of the most popular video game franchises of all time. Um, and, and especially at, at the time of this, you know, circa 10 mm-hmm. years ago, Halo 3 was the biggest entertainment release in history like no one had ever spent as much money um at the same time on one piece of media that people spent on halo 3 and so there was um this incredibly successful marketing campaign before the before the game was released and there was a short and it was um, directed by neil blomkamp and then um they were gonna give him the development for a full halo combat evolved movie um and it was gonna be produced by a peter jackson but unfortunately it got it got um, axed by the studio, so they decided they weren't going to make it. But then Peter Jackson saw the the practical effects that Neil Blomkamp was capable of doing, what he could put together, gave him $30 million to do whatever he wanted, and the result is District 9. Oh, that's cool. I
1: didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I, was I was watching, watching this movie, and Taylor, my three-year-old, was in the room, but I had him on his tablet and headphones, but he kept looking up. And I was like, I gotta turn this off. It was super violent. And my husband pointed it out and I was like, I don't think it's just like violent for like the glorification of violence sake. I think it was supposed to be very critical of like how much violence is used because it never seemed like a like a victory. Even kind of when Vickis was fighting, um, it never like, you never, I don't know, it never felt like victorious. It was just kind of like, we just need to hold them off so you can escape. But yeah, it was very, very violent. Well, we have Christopher Johnson, the main alien, the one that we follow, um, who um, was described as smart, but like in a really negative way, because they were like, "Ooh, we got we got to like, we can't just like easily convince him to leave. Right. Hmm. I'd be interested to know, like what they had intended to be like his background. Like, was he like the leader? Because how did he know how to do all that? Um, Did he just happen to like end up in the shack above that little ship? That was the thing that fell from the mothership, right? And so, like, is that why he did it and, like, everybody knew how to make the Mm -hmm. fuel? I don't know. I thought it was interesting. But he was a very caring character. He was. Who who was raising his son in such a, like, a, such a terrible environment. um, And tried for, he, it took him 20 years to make the fuel. And he lost it, like, immediately because Vickis confiscated it. He was a really interesting character. I also thought it was interesting. They named him Christopher Johnson. Like, I'm surprised they gave them, like, human names. Do you know what I mean? Not just, like, numbers. I'm not
3: surprised at all. Right. No, no way. Look, I mean, if you look at history of colonization, that type of stuff totally happens. Like, um, uh, so okay, so I'll give you an example. I was a volunteer t- teacher uh, in Bangladesh for, like, six, nine months, I can't remember, right out of college, which, by the way, was one of the most, like, fantastic experiences in my life um and one of the things that i noticed when i got there was that a lot of the a lot of the priests that i was working with a lot of the nuns that i was working with a lot of the students that i was working with had um like hindi first names right mm-hmm. or bangla rather bangla first names and uh like spanish last names or what i perceived at that time as spanish last names and i was and i asked them like hey guys what, like Costa and Rodriguez and um, you know a couple of others um, and I was like so how did this happen like historically and they're like no it's Portuguese there were there, there was a point at which the Jesuits shown up and basically anybody who come to Christianity at that time adopted a, a Portuguese last name um, and there were a lot yeah. and that kind of repeats itself in different parts of the uh, uh, of the world during the colonial era where, you know, to kind of be a fully fledged member. Right. Um, you will you will adopt uh, you will adopt this part of our culture. And, and I, I'm assuming that in that time, you know, adopting the Christian religion or probably Catholicism at, the, uh, at that time, mm-hmm. you know, is part of what was required to become a fully, you know, a fully fledged uh, member. I mean, to a certain degree, you see that even now. Not necessarily by force, but you. I I know of. I've had students um, in my long past of doing this uh, who have adopted um, English names to be used instead of their their names in their home language in order to. Either because they perceive as fitting in better that way or their parents did.
1: Yeah. I just I guess because they were because I know that historically that happened. Um, you know, enslaved people from Africa were given, you know, English English names and um, you know, and yeah, I've had students who tell me, Oh, you can call me this instead of, you know, my my Given name for my parents, but I was—I guess for the fact that they're aliens, I was surprised that they gave them human names, and they didn't want to like further separate themselves and just identify them as like a string of numbers or something. Kind of more like what happened with with the Holocaust, right? They the, the Jewish people were given a set of numbers because really they were just kind of counting them, um, and. They were just bodies, whereas I feel like that's kind of what they thought of with the aliens. But there was mention, now that I'm talking about it, of trying to find a way to, like, integrate them into society when this first had started. So maybe that was one of their things. Okay, now we're going to give them names so we can talk to them and interact with them. I also think it's interesting that they could understand each other.
0: So um, I thought I, th- I think that was was Wiccas the only one that could understand them, or could they all understand each other?
1: Well, I don't know. Maybe he was the only one that really talked to them because, like, Kubis wasn't going to talk to them.
0: Because apparently, if you if you don't have the subtitles on, it doesn't give you subtitles for what they're saying. But if you turn your subtitles on, it'll show you what the aliens are saying. But but I also read that the the way that they that they made the aliens talk uh, like they're, they're like sound effects was from rubbing pumpkins. What
3: isn't that wild? I read one commentary that said that um, uh, it's possible. I mean, this commentator said that it was possible that the aliens were were humans like that 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 what happened to vicus had happened to to all of them um and that some evidence that he cited to that, that that supported his theory was that that the that the aliens could understand the humans and that the humans could understand the aliens in other words whereas where if you try to talk to a frog you can't and frogs can't understand us um i mean i thought it was okay. the guy said yeah real basis but like that that was part of his theory Ooh,
0: can i talk about otherness mm-hmm. now yes yeah
3: yes. otherness
1: like the theme yes
3: okay so when it
0: comes to making a movie you have to have a conflict and in order to have, have a conflict you have to have an opposing force in order to have an opposing force you have to figure out why that force is opposing you and it also helps for general audiences if the opposing force does not look like something you are familiar with As humans, we are creatures of vision. When we see something, we are immediately drawn to their eyes. So if we look into someone's eyes and we see um, something that looks inhuman or unrecognizable, we are immediately antagonized by it. This is why racism unfortunately exists. But also, when it comes to how you decide to characterize your otherness in media, that makes things very, very complicated. Of course, we're all gonna cheer when Captain America and Thor and Iron Man fight against Thanos. He's a giant purple dude with a helicopter sword. He doesn't look like a human. We don't like him, right? But what's really cool is that you can fix this otherness and you can humanize the otherness by creating human-like features. So um, when Steven Spielberg was helping the art director come up with the design for ET, um, they looked at and interviewed um, elderly people that had lived through the Great Depression. So we immediately look at ET and we and we recognize him as human. But one thing that really helps is the pupils. So if we look at like the like if you just Google a picture of an alien, you're probably going to see like a big head, which symbolizes probably like larger intelligence but you but you don't see the classic americana design of aliens with pupils and so therefore when you see pupils dilate and refocus that's showing a human quality that we have so christopher johnson has pupils and we see him uh like it it doesn't even matter that he's like a giant bug-like thing but because he's acting like a human when he when he's um, on his knees by, by the military and he's about to be shot in the head, he looks very, very scared and he's worried about his son. When he gets into the drop ship and he's powering it up, he's um, like looking and focusing and thinking at the same time and we can see that through his pupil movement. But if we go all the way back to the 1970 movie Alien, the reason why the xenomorph is so scary is because it doesn't have eyes yeah so um when when you when you make a movie with an extraterrestrial opposing force if you want to humanize them more you make them look more human this is why avatar is so popular not the last airbender the 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 james cameron movie but also avatar by james cameron is just dances with wolves Mm -hmm. which is just for which is just you know every other movie ever um because no one's really creative these days um, but the idea behind showing pupils in media really kind of humanizes people, which is why um, in the Transformers movies, all the Autobots look like or they have like actual pupils. And that's why all of their cars are like recognizable American cars, because they want to be as less threatening as possible. Whereas the Decepticons are more like military grade weaponry. But even when they when they do transform, they're, they're less humanoid than their counterparts
3: they highlight the way that what they per- in which they perceive the alien's culture and behavior as completely opposed to our own. I mean, they say something like you know, they engage in destructive acts, like stealing and derailing, uh, what's it called? Um, derailing trains and all, all sorts of stuff. And then, and then Vicus says something like the prawn really doesn't understand the concept of ownership of pro- property. Right. And so, you know, I think, um I, I I think that part of you know part of having this very humanized um in combination with having this very humanized set of characters, they're also drawing out some of the differences that partially are driving people to have this this you know radical reaction because it's so unfamiliar to them. And if what's it called the, you know, and if people you know, and and I myself, started, okay. Well, what if somebody came over here and started acting like this? You know, would I be compelled to put them away from myself? Well, you know, who knows, right? But and but but, but then I thought to myself, well, it's not like I've ever been in a situation where aliens have come down and blah 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 blah. Well, if you start reading anthropological accounts from around the world of people's behavior. You'll start seeing some really significantly divergent behavior from what we would consider not just normal but moral. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, my own, the only the the first of two anthropology classes that I took uh, highlighted the Gypsy culture, and how even you know on many layers is very different from from the west uh, the rest of Western culture. And I remember particularly being like, "Wow, that's you know." Um, it would be very hard for me to like mentally mentally put myself in in their shoes and the evidence of what that, that contrast leads to is very clear from the second the holocaust i mean next to jews some of the people that that were that were really gone after by the nazis were were the roma shinti the you know the gypsies
1: yeah it seems like the whole purpose of this movie is that like when people are different from you like the first thought of saying like they're wrong, they're immoral is really dangerous. It's going to lead to really destructive and um, cruel acts. So you're going to further separate yourselves from them and you'll create narratives of they're dangerous. They're this, they're that. And I think the whole first part of the movie, the interviews really shows that they had all these people talking about what the aliens were. Like, when in reality, yeah. like they didn't actually know the aliens, they didn't interact with them on any significant level which is a lot like what people think of, like what you explained, Mr. Santos. like when you don't, when you can't empathize very naturally, you start creating stories. And we saw that and things fall apart. And that's one of the reasons why I pushed so much to read that book with our seniors is the Christian missionaries come in and they see the evo people who have had a system in place, which is not perfect. There's a lot of negatives to it, but just because they do a couple of things that are harmful, like killing twins and, um, you know, a human sacrifice with Ike Mefuna, uh, which are terrible things. They just assume everything they do is terrible and they will, they, they choose to kill them instead of trying to get to the know them and like find a way to coexist.
0: Otherness is always super interesting because I think it's a really important theme that we see in, I mean, I, I would say probably it's one of the more common themes in in just any media in general, but like, when it, because I I love that this movie didn't just it wasn't just saying something about like South Africans and the Zimbabwean people, because there's, there's the South Africans, there's um, the prawns, but then there's also the Nigerian warlords. And so I think that that kind of shows how, yeah. well, cause I, I remember reading, I think I was on Twitter or something. It was like, I, I love that like the beginning of district nine uh, is so realistic because aliens literally show up and no one just like, freaks out, everyone continues to go about their day because like, it's like, oh, well, I mean, there's a giant ship in the sky. What else can we do? But I think that it kind of shows how when you have these people that are relegated to economic ruin or, or I guess, to a place where they, where they can't actually reach self-actualization, it's so easy for other people to realize that and exploit it. Because the Nigerians went in and they exploited all the prawns for you know whatever resources they could get and they even had their own self like instead of being racist towards them because they look differently they wanted to eat eat their body parts so that they could like gain their power Mm
1: -hmm. well and i think the nigerian gangs were supposed to be like painted well not from the director's perspective but the community looked down on them right they were these like terrible people who did this weird witch magic, you know, that sort of stuff. And they they were, you know, they. I think the captions even like describe like their characters as like the thug said and gave the dialogue or whatever. Um, but really what they were doing was no different than what MNU was doing. MNU was performing experiments on the aliens to try to understand their biology so that way they could use their weapons because the aliens weapons didn't work when humans did it and so everybody thought the nigerian gangs were bad but in reality it's like that large corporate corporation was doing the exact same thing
3: oh absolutely
1: there was moments where i was like why are the nigerian gangs here and i was like oh what's going on with this like you don't want to just like paint this picture of like oh nigerian people are going to eat aliens if they come here but (laughs) when i thought more about it i realized what was going on
3: well, and on top of like, I mean, because I mean, we're talking about the construction of otherness, right? I mean, uh, which uh, which which we act, you know humans actively engage in on a you know on a day to day basis, whether they admit it uh, to themselves or each other or not. Beyond but that, I think beyond, there's also the question of if 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 we construct otherness, how do we construct personhood? In other words, by you know, by what criteria? do we what criteria do we use to assign to a, a being right the the rights responsibilities and privileges that that we would give to other, other um, human beings right i mean how, how what is it that what is it that makes a person a person worthy of these um of of these rights right and of course every time that we've come into like a colonial contact situation um that's That that stuff, that type of stuff, has come up. But I mean, it also comes up because on that question, on the question on what makes a person a person, or what makes a human or human, or however you want to frame it, a lot of policy hangs on that, Um, and and pretty explicitly. I mean, everything from everything from civil rights to even like abortion laws to like you know all sorts of stuff. I mean, and that even gets touched on a little bit in, in the film. You know, he they're about to shoot the little kid. The 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 baby uh, Christopher Johnson's child, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 Vic stops him. He's like, "What are you crazy? You? you can't do that. You can't shoot him now." Implying like he's been born, <laughs> we can't do what we used to do with to the eggs before they were born legally. Um, so I think mm-hmm. you know, I think one of the questions, uh, you know, b- b- behind you know behind some of these themes is what constitutes. Uh, what's it called? What constitutes a being worthy of this concept, personhood, that implies rights? And how is it that humans assign this? And what type of messed up stuff happens when you you don't properly assign or not assign this to beings, right? And I, you know the answer is pretty clear from you know from the movie.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important question that that, that needs to be asked. What what makes a person a person? Well, who makes the decision? and so that's a buttercup yeah 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 because i mean vickis thought that he made the decision but then eventually um he realized that he was wrong and you know i mean i've been learning uh, uh, or all these words have been thrown around in this in this space of you know cultural unlearning and relearning but one that um will never probably not leave our our daily vocabulary now is cognitive dissonance the idea of when you are you figure out that something that you knew to be true is no longer true and that and that overall reaction of that um and the process of doing that so we see a lot of cognitive dissonance happen with vickis only but that's because he's our he's our point of view character but no one else in the in his except for um i'm really glad that they didn't kill his like assistant guy because he didn't have like a bulletproof vest on and so i thought he would I thought he was just gonna get like domed by oh. a random shot, but but yeah, I loved yeah. that they kept him alive, and I loved that um, it, it had that little like talking point at the end where it's like he was the one that like whistle blew that they were mm-hmm. doing the the genetic ex- experiments on on the prawns. Um, but it I, seems I like, what like they did with
3: his character. It seems like he got in trouble for it. Yeah, he's in prison
1: <laughs> because like what I, I imagine they charged him with like exposing government secrets or whatever instead of whistleblowing. Well, and his wife kind of, Vicus's wife yeah. kind of seemed to be on his side by the end of it. Like at first she was very disgusted by all the things they were saying, but she kind of, I guess, probably sat with that cognitive dissonance and like learned that, right. you know, aliens aren't as terrible as they made them out to be. And so if her husband is an alien, like she still loves him.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I was going to say that one theme that kept that I kept thinking about was that bureaucratic policies aren't always just. And when you reflect that on some of them, you know, apartheid, the Holocaust, slavery, colonialism, Jim Crow laws were all legal. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were right. And legality is a matter of power, not justice. And I think the the theme and also a connection to Today is that we have to be vigilant of these things so that we can speak up against them. We always look at you know there was a quote um a post that I saw a while ago that said, you know if you lived during the time of Anne Frank, you would want to speak up against the Holocaust, but we're also living in a time right now that's very interesting and wanting to bring justice you know to um, black lives matters and immigration and you know, we're, we're learning and relearning on how we can go about and make things better and we need to speak up. And now's the time. We didn't have to live in the time of Anne Frank. Now is the time. And I think about, you know, the immigration practices at the border and kids in cages and the Muslim ban. These are things we need to speak up against and just because they're legal doesn't mean that it's right.
0: Correct, mm-hmm.
3: correct. Talking about a little bit because some of these things, some of these decisions that, become legalized themselves aren't really completely legal. I mean if I'm if, if I'm thinking about kind of the, the I'm going to think about a couple of things. The legal justification that they use for the eviction of the of the aliens is whether you know is the fact that they've served these people with notices that were signed and they and they consent to it. Well the consent is completely contrived in many cases invented and obviously coerced and in history that type of stuff kind of plays out. You know the United States and it's dealing with the Cherokee Nation at a certain point in the early 1800s decides that it's gonna kind of mimic um, American society in a certain sense establish. Um, I think they establish borders if I'm if if I'm correct they they establish a, a, a formalized government um, they they establish a script for their language and end up uh, it was a syllabary and they end up. Uh, starting up a newspaper and 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 translating the bible and um and they had like a 90, something crazily high like a 98% literacy rate in like 20 years or whatever something never heard of in in, in terms of literacy in earth's history and um and so they were they were they were able to establish what should have been recognized by the certain world as a legal state which a lot of the other uh, nations on paper couldn't right, so the gold, you know, gold is discovered in Georgia or somewhere, you know, some somewhere where they were, and basically their land, people were trying to take away their lands, um, and I think they sold, you know, some of the leadership in the Cherokee Nation sold big chunk of it off for five million dollars, and everybody decided it was unjust, so it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court said. That taking those lands was unconstitutional. And mind you, the constitution is considered the highest law of the land, and the Supreme Court being their interpreters. And President Jackson and Congress still took it. Like we have no problem breaking, you know, these types of forces have no problem breaking their own laws to pull this, you know, to to pull these kinds of things off. And I don't think I think that the story doesn't really present much of a different. Uh You know, I, I think that 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 the legality was a very thin veil on on the part of the uh, of, of MNU or whoever the authority was. Yeah, yeah
0: well, the whole do as I say, not as I do thing.
1: Yeah. And they were also just like trying to find the bare minimum legal requirements. Like and it, it was only like. They were only slightly legal and they even mentioned like um Like when the, the guys, the military guys, like he mentions like, oh yeah, they shoot first and then, and then answer the questions. Like, so then once they decide that like these aliens have become hostile, they kind of like all the legal rules go out the window and you see them just like using force to take what they want, which is, um, how, you know, historically a lot of land has been
0: taken.
3: It's kind of like Eddie Izzer says, my flag, my country, right?
0: All right. Well, we can keep going with connections. I wish that I mean I understand that it wasn't the uh, protest story, but I love that that like as soon as the the like day one of, of the eviction started, there were millions of people in the streets like pro- protesting that it, it was a very quick shot and it was probably only like like ten seconds of the whole film, but I thought that that was really nice. But I think that we we can connect this to our modern society, um, just as Mr. Santos said, just because um, something. Uh, is legally done does not mean that it is the right thing. Um, I think that we all kind of stacked on each other's ideas to get to that point. Um, Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it's not like I'm trying to indoctrinate anyone with anti-American sentiments because, you know, I'm very proud to live in this country, but also, you know, um, allegiance and fealty aren't the same thing. You need to figure out what the, where the line is. And when you see an injustice, you know, stand for it. And uh, I, I, I think it was really cool that they took this, like, bureaucratic um, agent of, uh, I guess y- y- you could say ignorance, uh, who learns by the end that, you know, they're not as different. Probably because Christopher Johnson had pupils.
1: Well, I mean, because they were living beings who had identities and feelings and all sorts of things. Well, so the connection I made, I focused specifically on the the experiments that were happening on the the aliens. It made me think of the Tuskegee experiments, mm-hmm. the syphilis experiments, which I was like, "You know what I should probably know know more about that so then i I researched it and I found it was a forty year experiment where they didn't tell any of the the people that were participating that they were just going to see what happened when they didn't treat syphilis for years and years and years and well after they could, they, well, after penicillin was being used as a treatment, cause syphilis can cause like blindness and all this sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was, this experiment happened to black sharecroppers, people, you know, black people who were oppressed legally and, um, and just like financially didn't have the options. And then I remember I read something online about like the quote father of gynecology and I'm not going to get into the details, but his name was J Marion Sims. And he actually is one of like the first doctors who developed gynecologic surgeries, but he practiced his surgeries on enslaved women with no anesthesia. And then I just kind of was thinking like, how many things are going on now that would be considered legal because of biases and beliefs that we just don't see as wrong? I guess maybe someone might point out like animal testing for like beauty products and stuff like that. Like maybe Mm -hmm. there's probably things I don't know about.
3: in modern research, like, let's just say you're a university professor, right? Um, and this is the case whether you're a behavior scientist, like a social scientist, or, or a, a hard science person, like a chemist or a biochemist or something. If you are using human subjects in your investigation, right? You're, before you can be, and, and if it's if this is intended to use for publication, presentation, that type of stuff, your study has to be cleared by what's called an institutional review board Um, and usually those institutional review boards are affiliated with universities right Um, but there are some that aren't there are some independent ones meaning the bottom line is you you can't just do tests on human subjects without somebody without an authority over, in at least in the united states without an authority overseeing what you're gonna do to determine that it's not detrimental, that it's not, and I mean, there's all sorts of protections built into this. I'm not saying that it always protects people 100%, but it, there, there is a system in place um, to do that. And there's also a system in place for animal testing for that type of stuff.
1: Another thing that I thought of, which I didn't remember my note, I didn't understand my note, but I figured it out as we've been talking. Um, so like you have the South African people and we see the ways they feel about the aliens and it kind of made me think about the suburbs because the suburbs were originally like, well, specifically in the Detroit area were developed because people didn't want to live in the city with black people. And so it was kind of like this fear of the other, not wanting to live by them because they thought they were too different or they thought they were less than, And I feel like that sentiment still kind of happens in suburbs because like, especially, well, okay. So San Antonio has pseudo suburbs, I would say. So like all the neighborhoods out by like 1604, like I live in one, um, it's technically, um, Bexar County and not its own suburb, but it feels the same way. And so like you have, a lot of them are gated and then a lot. Most of them have HOAs, so if you can't afford to pay the HOA and you can't like afford to keep your house in a certain way that you're supposed to, you can't live there. And then my husband and I walked to the next neighborhood, it connected, and there were all these signs, and I didn't understand it, but these signs that said, this is a private residence. And I was wondering, like, are they, like, why? is that sign there to, like, tell people they can't, like, just come into their home? I didn't understand what it was. But like you get this feeling sometimes in suburbs of like if somebody is in the neighborhood that they don't think belongs, it's automatically a threat. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I just went on a walk this morning with my kids and somebody has a decoration on their house that says we don't call 911 and just had some guns under it. It's like, well, <laughs> legal gun ownership, I understand that it's your your uh, second amendment right. But like I didn't the presenting the message sent so much like Like, they're so fearful of anybody that they just don't know automatically. Do you know what I mean?
0: I know exactly what you mean. I mean...
1: It's a weird feeling when you think about it, because this is my neighborhood, but it feels like what the South African people were saying about the aliens sometimes.
0: So I think that xenophobia is probably one of the most... um, because I, it goes hand-in-hand with, with otherness. I mean, that's that's basically mm-hmm. what, what it boils down to. But I think that, that xenophobia in society is just – it's always been very rampant. I think that um, laws and policies are kind of created to either pacify that or to exacerbate it. So the whole uh, – I know that it just came out yesterday that the couple – I think it was in St. Louis, the ones that were brandishing their guns um, – at the protesters who weren't even at their house, but I understand, you know, you're a legal gun owner, do what you need to do, but also don't don't point a firearm at anything you don't intend to to kill. And so I think that uh, that couple, they're getting they're getting charges pressed against them. And, you know, whenever it comes down to the whole idea behind xenophobia, it's people want to feel safe. But we are unable to have that conversation of what that actually means. Like, on a on a mass on a mass level, like a mass definition of safety,
1: I had that conversation with a um, someone who will remain unnamed where they told me they feel safe when everybody in their community looks like them. Yikes. yeah
3: well <laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy but and and and, uh, and kind of back to what I said uh you know about about things that go counter culturally towards the the dominant culture. I mean, the the implication there is not people people who look like them, but people who act, think, and speak like them. You know what I mean? Um, And just so much can go wrong because of that. Um, Did you all ever watch the documentary called The Lost Boys of Sudan? There was a part where they were talking about how boys from Sudanese, like I think refugee camps after they'd been selected to be brought to the United States they were all they were you know let's just say it was a group of five boys right and they were they were put in a you know in a house to live together um, while they're going to school but there was always another guy who was who had you know who had been brought over in the same way you know 10 years before to kind of guide them through the cultural of you know of of the united states right and one of the things that like shocked me was you know he's he's going through them and he's like all right guys so there you know this is a trash can right you can't you can't just get your trash and throw it out the window like you would back home right and uh you know and and that makes sense i mean i'm sure that in other parts of the world much more of the trash produced by humans is biodegradable than, you know, than, than our, you know, than, than we have. Right. So that might be even like logically acceptable, but could you imagine, I could just imagine my HOA, <laughs> like, you know, I can imagine the letters that I would get if I started just dumping out and, and, and not knowing any better, you know what I mean? Just started dumping out uh, trash from my, from, you know, from the side of my house. Now, You know, I can't I couldn't blame somebody for engaging in that type of activity if they weren't familiar with you know with the context. On the other hand, it's the lack of knowledge of the you know of of the other person's context that leads policies to marginalize them as well. And I think that, you know, not only do we as people need to be able to be comfortable with people who quote unquote don't look like us, but I think we also need to become, as human beings, informed about the contexts, and cultures of people who don't act like us and talk like us and think like us. Um, and it's not easy, right? I mean, who's got the time to start, you know, digging into like anthropological accounts or, you know, or watching every single documentary, you know, made about this? But at the time, if there's somebody in your community, who doesn't look, think, act, and talk like you, well, it might be a good idea to start looking into it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I went to middle school and I became friends with a Muslim girl and learning about her family's like religion and culture and traditions was mind-blowing to me in middle school. I never knew anybody that wasn't Christian. And I think that really helped me grow as an adult who was accepting of like, just naturally, if I meet someone who's a different religion, it doesn't throw me as much. Um, I mean, I haven't met everybody of every religion, so I can't say that I'm going to be, I meet every single person. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it made my life a little easier. I was able to just, when I learned about someone practicing, you know, a different religion, it wasn't that big of a deal. But it was because it was a big deal when I was in middle school.
3: I think a great point of contact between cultures is food and my... Mm. Personal opinion. <laughs> like, agreed. Yes. Like learn, people can learn to love each other by breaking bread, like it, you know, like nothing else. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but no, but yeah, I mean, I, I that definitely, I think, and 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 also, you know, also the aspect of showing interest in some, somebody else, right? In somebody else's culture and language. I mean, I, I, there's there's nothing so disarming like, hey man, you know how do you say such and such in, you know, in, in your language? like, you know, how, how can I properly talk to your parents, you know, without sounding like an imbecile, um, mm-hmm. right. you know, in, 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 in your language. I mean, that's, that's very, I don't want, maybe disarming is not the right word, but that, you know, that, that, that positions you and that other person in a, in a stance that demonstrates that you're not there as a threat and neither are they, you know, it's not that hard. I don't think. Right. I Usually.
0: think that the only hard part of it comes from like, hey, how do I ask this person about their culture in a non-performative, non-hostile way? Because, um, yeah. or, an also non-exploitative way. Uh, because mm-hmm. I think that whenever you are, because I, have I told you guys about my boba theory? So I have a theory yeah. that no white supremacist in history has ever had boba tea. <laughs> <laughs> And I know that that sounds silly, but, but like, I mean, you got to think when when it comes to, so white supremacy is the idea that all others are inferior, right? So why would you change what you know to be culturally true, even when it comes to something as simple as flavor palette or texture palette to something that is completely un-white,
1: I don't know. I feel like white supremacists could, I still, I wouldn't say that they don't like explore other cultures.
0: Panda Express doesn't count.
1: No, I mean like, (laughs) I'm trying to think of an example. I mean like, yes, they appropriate it and like, we could say water it down. Like, you know, with with Cinco de Mayo, you know, I like, I grew up, everybody talked about Cinco de Mayo, but I didn't know anything about Mexican culture. And um, I'm sure I grew up with a lot of white supremacists who just, weren't very vocal about their identity but they still you know let's drink tequila and cinco de
3: mayo yeah dude i promise (laughs) you that there are plenty of white supremacists who have eaten at 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 taquerias all over texas
0: the thing is white supremacists don't just walk around saying i'm a white supremacist i know it's (laughs) gotten a lot (laughs) exactly they've gotten (laughs) a lot more you
1: had boba tea you haven't had boba tea no and it's not because like there's there's literally a boba place like
0: half a mile from your house
1: Oh, there was one right off of michigan state's campus and i just like never knew like i never knew anybody that drank it a lot so nobody ever took me and i never did it myself and i just never had it i don't know
3: oh it's so good but i'm glad that you brought up the the approach the the side of approaching these things mm-hmm. in a non fashion because i agree it is very easy to either in fact do this or at least come off in a way That feels I mean, you know, if if you, you know, if you approach somebody and the entire conversation that you have with that person is about, you know, their culture, they're gonna start feeling like, or I would start feeling like an anthropologist is coming over to kind of essentially interrogate me to extract from my brain, you know, the 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 product of my culture. And you definitely don't ever want to do that or make somebody else feel like that. But 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 it but but it's definitely valuable to show the caring and the interest that you have, and not not just the interest, but the validation that you know that that you offer to other people's culture. Not that anybody needs you for their validation, but but what's it called? But but there's there there. You know, we, we need to be able to show each other's like you know, respect for each other's uh, for for each other's cultures.
1: I have a rule of thumb for that. I don't ask anybody about like their culture until I get to know them as a person briefly, you know, like that's never like my, it never comes up in the first or second. And the same thing with students. Cause there are times with students that I'm curious and, and I know it's important to know their culture, but I'm never going to ask them, you know, until I get to know them as a, a person, um, you know, to a moderate amount, as much as you can do in like the first few weeks of school.
3: That's a good rule of thumb. The only context in which I break, that sometimes i do ask about students language and and the way their language is structured because it helps me it helps me to teaching it helps me to teach them english yeah. when i know when i know what their what you know what their language is structured like and oftentimes the only resource i have for that sometimes not always but sometimes the only resource i have uh is a teacher themselves but i'm glad that you mentioned that because i i might need to reflect on how i approach that myself Uh
1: Well, I think when you're teaching them English, asking them about their, you know, their, their home language is, it's not like a necessarily a cultural question at that moment. I think it's kind of a teacher question. Like when I have a a student who walks into my classroom, I I ask them, where are you coming from? You know, what school or what class, you know, what teacher? So I think kind of that, that's, it's that type of question when, when we're talking in a teaching context, especially with EFA. All right, guys, any other thoughts about District 9?
0: It was really good. Um, it's and so I told, um, I told a colleague that we were doing this, and he's like, You know, I always thought of Neil Blomkamp as the science fiction version of M. Night Shyamalan, where like his first movie was amazing, but everything else has kind of been like a a (laughs) miss because I mean, he has he's made like Elysium, which was the Matt Damon movie, and that one I think is about class divide. Yeah. Um, so that one's kind of interesting but i've never i don't think i've seen another oh and then chappy which i have seen bits and pieces of and but but i i don't think he outdid this movie i think that this was probably his i think that this still remains a very great movie even if you're not willing to like look at the um (laughs) clear overt uh theming in it and just look at it as a science fiction movie because i don't i don't even remember the marketing for this movie um and when I when I go back and look at it, I'm like, I a, a a movie about racism, but they use aliens instead. Why was this not my jam? Like
1: <laughs> I mean, full disclosure, the only reason I even know about this movie is because a professor in college assigned it with for a class period to discuss how cool is that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was probably twenty ten or twenty eleven when he assigned it. And I remember I had to like find it on a boo lag website, cause I was a poor college student who wasn't gonna pay for a movie for a class. It was teaching literature. Um, and my professor specifically focused on teaching literature to black students. That's so cool.
2: I'm gonna say that, you know, when you think of South Africa, a lot of people make a connection to Nelson Mandela. And, you know, if you can get your hands on a biography of him, that's great. There's also someone that I read about that I, and there's a movie, called Cry Freedom uh, with Denzel Washington in it. it, You can learn a lot from it. It's the movie of Steve Biko, the medical student from South Africa who led um, the South African student organization. And he wanted to counteract Bantu education in South Africa. And um, one night when he was with a friend, um, he got pulled over by police and the police found that he had um, anti-apartheid pamphlets and flyers in his car and they arrested him. They beat him. Um, three weeks later, they decided to all of a sudden care about his you know, physical uh, status and they transferred him to a hospital and he ended up dying. Um, so the movie Cry Freedom is about him. Um, they say that he died due to a hunger strike but it was really due to hemorrhaging in the head um, from all the blows that they gave him. Um, Also, there's some uh, pop culture songs written about him. There's Biko, a song written by Peter Gabriel, and also the one called Stir It Up by my favorite, one of my favorite rap groups, a tribe called Quest. Um, Also, um, The Power of One. I think I mentioned it once in a podcast. It's a movie, but it's also a novel by Bryce Courtenay. Uh, very good movie uh, about apartheid in South Africa and the one that I found this Easter egg on Netflix And it's called Looking for Sugarman and it was a 2012 movie about a singer by the name of Rodriguez who by the way, Miss Rodriguez, he was born in Detroit, Michigan he's uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> from Mexican uh, immigrant oh parents and in this film he, they, was, they, were, he, they were told that he was killed, that he killed himself on stage, like he pulled a gun and shot himself. But I'm not gonna give it away as far as what the surprise is at the end. But this guy, his, the writing of his songs is very comparable to that of Bob Dylan. And it's on Netflix right now. I haven't, um, I'm gonna go through it and rewatch it again, but it completely blew my mind. So just a few things to look up about South Africa some interesting lessons we can get from there. Love
1: it. That's so cool. Somehow the book that I read this week did not connect, but Trevor Noah's autobiography, Born a Crime does connect and it's very funny and a very good book. Um, so if you haven't read it, you should read it or listen. Yes. To, it's a, I think it's an audible book. Yes, You can get your first one free or whatever. All right. Well, I think that's about it guys.
0: All right. Next week we are watching parasite finally oh my gosh okay so i haven't got i haven't seen this one either so i finally get an excuse to watch it um because it's been like it's been on our watch list literally in our queue for like weeks um but all right we get to watch parasite
1: it is on hulu With- it
3: is. thank you it's on hulu
1: yes it's streaming on hulu and it's a very good movie it is in korean but everybody can read subtitles
3: and it is really good <laughs>
1: All right, well, thank you, guys. We'll see
3: you next week. Be well. Stay safe. Stay safe, y'all.